All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast. It's the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel Elwood and my co-host is Robert Johnson. And this is episode 176 of the show. We're going to be talking about The Robe, which is a film from the 50s starring Richard Burton and is a bit of a, of a continuation of the story of the crucifixion, some peripheral uh, of the story and some of the aftermath. So I think it's going to be very appropriate that we do this one for Easter this year as we did The Passion of the Christ, which is ultimately about the crucifixion with the anarcho-Christian last year. And he's back at it again, joining us this episode as well. But before we introduce him during the last night's portion of the show, I will let you know that you can get pre-show and post-show bonus content from us on Patreon at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. This is episode 176, and you can find the show notes more at episode... Ah, 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 ah. Actualanarchy.com slash 176. Robert, save me. What's save- up, Daniel? How are you? Good to be back on the show. I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. It's good to see you. And uh, I do have a question for you before we do mm. introduce our guest. And that is, mm-hmm. suppose Uh-oh. somebody happened to have a restaurant in this COVID-19 time of their lives. That poor bastard. FEMA Region 10. Yeah. Would they, in operating such a restaurant now, would they be within the bounds of an unjust law under these emergency conditions, sir? Well, yeah, of course. I mean... Uh... All these, uh, I was watching this Larkin Rose video the other day where he was talking about how these governors, even according to their own constitutions, don't even have the power to force businesses to close or to change them at all. So, yeah, this is all entirely, well, they're all immoral laws, but Daniel. Well, my question is, are you, uh, would such a person in operating the restaurant be within the bounds of following the unjust laws as they, as they exist? And we must deal with the repercussions of those unjust laws as immoral as they are. I'm not, I'm not and, asking you to talk about your specific situation, nor admit any culpability or guilt in any way, sir. I'm sorry, you broke my brain there for a second. Okay, so you're asking me if it's possible for a restaurateur to operate a business within the guidelines as they exist in FEMA Region 10 right now. Am I correct? And still serve customers, still be operating. Well, no, no, no. You can't actually. I mean, well, I suppose you could, someone could walk up, lay down their money and then walk away. And then the cashier could walk up, pick up the money, walk back to the cashier, the cash register, take it, and then walk up, lay down the food, walk away, and the customer could come and pick it up. But no, we, we, we violate the social distancing stuff all the time. Um, I don't think that's any kind of particular mandate right that's just a suggestion but it seems like there are more and more brown shirt people out there all the time that are getting upset about it. although in some areas right people are actually being arrested for not following whatever social distancing whatever and in fact i saw like there was a fight that broke out some doctor assaulted two girls who weren't who were like within a few feet of each other or something like that 
I think he violated the social distancing when he was choking her out, but I don't know. Yeah, my, my favorite was the surfer or paddleboarder down in California who was nowhere near anybody. And then the police get close to him to apprehend him and then put him in a jail close to other people because he yeah. violated social distancing, apparently, by being far, far away from people. Yeah, I want to see what a social distancing arrest looks like, where the police actually follow the social distancing guidelines or rules or whatever. It's just a, a conversation between two people at, at distance. Now you need to go around. Okay, turn around. Okay, walk backwards. More, more. Okay, reach down, pick up the handcuffs, handcuff yourself. Okay, walk forward now. Well, I, I will say this, and then we'll we'll get into last night's person of the show. They practice social distancing uh, management with dogs all the time. It's true. Before they get within six feet, they put them down. Yep. yep. Smart. Those dogs are going to be carrying COVID. It's a bold move. It's a bold move. Just like this show and just like The Last Nighters, where we're going to be introducing our guest, the anarcho-Christian. Stay tuned for all that right after. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and we can be found on the Launchpad Media where they're always launching, launching, launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. You can also find the show notes and more for this episode on the robe at lastnighters.com slash 119. This is the 119th episode of the show. Now, last Easter, we did a special with the anarcho-Christian on the Passion of Christ, which was telling the story of the crucifixion. This year, it's a bit of an appropriate uh, continuation of that story as we get into some of the periphery and aftermath, as we talk about the robe with the anarcho-Christian making his triumphant return, his annual, uh, I guess it's not a uh, trek to Mecca, right? It's sort of a different thing, a different uh, trek. But uh, anarcho-Christian, if you are uh, available to speak by unmuting, there you are. Uh, Welcome to the show. Uh, We do appreciate having you back on. It's uh, it was a really good conversation last year. I might say, Uh, I know that I speak for Robert here, uh, that we were both very nervous about your appearance last year for Passion of the Christ because we are atheists and you, are, of course, are Christian. However, we all share the bonds of anarchy. And so I think that uh, it ended up being a really good discussion. And I will have the uh, link to that episode on our show notes page for this one as well. I think it will be a good, um, like I said, continuation of that one. So I welcome back. It. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And I agree that when we did this last year, uh, you know, we, I don't think any of us were really sure, you know, what was going to come of watching a movie like that and talking about it, but I had a great time and um, uh, I'm looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, indeed. And uh, why don't you just remind everybody real quick um, where they can find what you do and, and well, what is it that you do? Where can they find it? And what has been, you know, some recent uh, stuff, recent appearances that you've made and uh, we will of course put links to all of that stuff on our show notes page well i appreciate it um so anarchochristian.com that's our main hub that you can go to online to find out what we're doing and uh, you'll see articles posted there as well as links to the podcast that that i do and um you know also we're on all the social media sites so if you you can find it all from anarchochristian.com or just go into the social media sites and type in the browser anarchochristian and it should pop up. And, uh, but yeah, we've been, you know, staying real busy with, uh, putting out the podcast, uh, every couple of weeks. And, uh, we've been doing that for a couple of years. And I was just recently, uh, had the pleasure of being on the blast off show, uh, a few, a few days ago, I think we recorded that. So I'm not sure if it's, uh, out just yet, but it should be pretty soon. 
All right. Yeah, very cool. And we will, of course, link to that. Um, I was on their show, um, gosh, a year and a half ago, maybe two and a half years ago now, episode five. So I don't know what number they're on now. Did did, did you happen to recall? I did not catch the number. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I know they're up there. But so uh, I was I was on back, you know, when I uh, had something unique and interesting to say. Uh, now it's all I'm I'm like Joe Biden dementia style. I forget things all the time. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll of course put that on our show notes page, and uh, of course the the link to your previous appearances. And then um, we've had Raylene on a couple of times, and she'll be coming up uh, with us again, I think, in a few weeks. So um, that'll be fun as well. So um, how we usually start this off is the old Google description. Um, so if you can uh, open your hymnals to uh, 1953, please. Uh, this is the robe. It's a drama slash epic, two hours and 15 minutes long, though it feels longer. Am I right, Robert? You're not wrong. <laughs> uh, 6.7 IMDb, 33% Rod Tomatoes, 3.8 out of 5 on Netflix, yet 88% of Google users like it. The description is, in this biblical epic, a drunk and disillusioned Roman, played by, or Marcellus, Gallio, played by Richard Burton, wins Jesus's robe in a dice game after the crucifixion. Marcellus has never been a man of faith like his slave Demetrius, played by Victor Mature. But when Demetrius escapes with the robe, Marcellus experiences disturbing visions and feels guilty for his actions. Convinced that destroying the robe will cure him, Marcellus sets out to find Demetrius and discovers his Christian faith along the way. Came out September 16th, 1953. Director is Henry Coster. And it won a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama. It was the very first film ever to be filmed in CinemaScope. And um, just in watching it, you can kind of tell they are definitely making use of the entire widescreen format. They have the set uh, purposefully set, you know, like very wide. And they have action and activity going across from one side to the other. Uh, it really stands out. And I thought that that was actually um, very, uh, very well done, and very prominent. So, um, Robert, I'll go to you for your reaction and opening information. Then we will go to Stephen for his reaction to your reaction. And then we'll get my piddling oh, commentary oh, somewhere, somewhere sprinkled into the mix. Ooh, spicy. Yeah, okay. So I had never heard of this movie before until last week when Daniel said we were doing it. And it's, it's, how, it's how I do this show. I just kind of find out along with everybody else what's going to happen. It's kind of exciting. But um, I don't, we haven't done one of these epic ones before. And it very much felt like it. It's done in that Ben-Hur style, Ten Commandments style, where you've got these giant sets and you've got all these extras in the background all doing this stuff. And you've got all these uh, matte paintings all placed perfectly with the camera to make it look like they're in this huge place. And for the most part, I think it's it's pretty impressive. Like This is the best they could do at the time, obviously. It's way before CGI or any kind of special effects other than like stop motion animation and re rear screen projection. And... It's they, the acting, though, is, is very much kind of like stage style action acting um, where people are overly melodramatic. You're not you know, you don't get a lot of like tight close ups. There's not a lot of camera movement. There's not a lot of, you know, it's you have to be understood what kind of emotions you're expressing from, you know, 10 rows back. So it's very much played up um, for just a different kind of audience. So it's, it's, it's weird to watch a modern movie and then watch this movie. And it's just two wildly different styles of filmmaking. Um, I, I just don't, it just, it's just, it just shows its age so badly, but it's, you know, um, it's, I guess it's how you do it back then. If you really want to place it in this setting in the ancient times, you've got to make all these sets and all the matte paintings. And they really did their best to make the world feel alive, even though it felt more like a play 
with the way that the sets were constructed and the limited amount of character movement and that sort of thing. You know, you're not going to have like a chase scene like that. I mean, there was one. They, Hollywood, even back then, they could do like a horse chase scene. So they they did that, but that's about it. And that even that was like almost rear screen projection style. Hey, someone's coming at us. But um, the story itself, if I could get around to talking about it at some point, is, um, you know, it's kind of like this redemption story, right? It's a... It's a guy who's just a cog in the machine for the most part, but he ends up being sent to this area where he's just doing his job, just following orders, doing his job for the most part. And he ends up taking part in the execution of Jesus, who is just this, you know, unknown rando wizard guy, fanatic, religious fanatic, according to the Romans at the time. And there's a fair amount of, you know, like superstition and what's really going on here. And is it guilt that's really plaguing this guy because he really feels something because he doesn't feel guilt about the other murders or the other killings. It's just just the Jesus one, which is fine. But um, anyway, it's a it's a really long kind of um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I've just been I've just been spoiled by modern cinema and it's so faster. It's just so much faster. You, you get it. You, things move on. But this, this, the pace here is really slow. The um, the scenes kind of drag. And it just ultimately feels a little on the boring side. But, you know, I am open to have my opinion changed. Um, maybe there's, I think, probably what's going to happen is I'm going to enjoy this conversation more than I enjoy the movie. Not that it's a necessarily a terrible movie. I just think it's it's just really showing its age with this old ancient style of filmmaking. Um, even though they were, I mean, they're obviously doing the best they could at the time. All right. Well, thank you for that, Robert. And, and I agree with your initial take. And I think it is a result of uh, similar to how we sort of critique Chuck Heston back in the day for being very stage actory, but it's a film. And so he's like almost overacting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was actually um, a recommendation that when Stephen and I were talking about, okay, are we going to, let's do another episode, you know, let's do a, an Easter show. And what should we do? And I was thinking something like, I don't know, um, something with Chuck Heston in it. Uh, he did 10 commandments or something. And, uh, Steven, you were like, no, man, Richard Burton way better. Let's do the robe." <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'm convinced let's do it. Um, so we're actually next week, we're going to have a, uh, Chuck Heston film. So we're going to do the back to back. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention that at the very end, but, uh, so we will, we will have some Chuck here, but we do see some of that similar kind of style, some of that delivery, the, uh, the stage oration kind of thing. And, you're right, Robert. It is it is almost like a play. Like they have these dramatic sets and they utilize the entire set rather than with camera moves. They have the people moving across this entire wide area. And um, also it's sort of I think that's what adds to the the lengthy feel is that they open sort of fade into this action, the scene, do this whole kind of lengthy scene and then fade out. And then you're in a new scene where they do the same thing and it just kind of feels sort of plodding along a little bit but i think it is just a result of how films kind of were made back then and uh it sort of makes sense in that in that regard but i still think that it was it was a, it was a good story i enjoyed it it just it felt way longer than two hours and 15 minutes for some reason it took me three nights uh and if i wanted to get biblical i was going to say 40 nights uh, to watch <laughs> it but it was just three um uh with my wife and i and uh but you know we enjoyed it um i didn't take a whole lot of notes because i didn't find myself compelled to write anything down. It was weird. But I did I did notice that since we did Passion of the Christ last year, I kind of liked how the filmmakers sort of took it as a given that people who are going to be in the audience are going to know the story of the crucifixion. So they just kind of touch on it. 
they just sort of like, okay, this event kind of happens, but you don't see it. You know, you don't, you don't even see Jesus when he's carrying the cross. You see, you see his like legs and his arms and that's it. And I, I wonder, and I'll direct this to you, Stephen, do you think that, that was a um, purposeful thing to not show Jesus? Because that might've been, um, I don't know, maybe something that the audience wouldn't like, especially at the time, like seeing Jesus depicted in film by an actor, which, you know, when they did Passion of the Christ, of course, Caviezel was, was Jesus in, in that film. Mm-hmm. But I think that was even controversial, right? So, I mean, was it was it a weird thing to show Jesus as a man, as somebody portraying him? Back? Yeah, isn't it? I, as far as I know, Christianity doesn't have the same kind of weirdness that Islam does with Muhammad, right? I mean, you can depict Christ, but like Daniel says in this film, they definitely went out of their way to not show his face. Is that just a because they didn't want to, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, um, I, it's definitely intentional, um, but as far as, a real reason why I've never seen anything that someone, you know, a director or or a cinematographer or some, an actor said, this is exactly why we're doing it. And I always took it as um, maybe a mix of both where um, it's a little bit artistic of not putting a face to Jesus there. Um, But but then also maybe, um, you know, taking into account that there are people who will have issues with that. And it isn't like Islam where, there is a there is a hard rule that there will not be any sort of depiction, but there are groups within Christianity that do uh, consider even a, a picture of Jesus or um, or a drawing or something some sort of depiction of him as a violation of one of the commandments of a graven image, and um, so that is something. It's not as uh, prominent as in the Islam, but it is something that I can imagine someone who who comes from that perspective would appreciate that more in a movie like this. Okay. And and I also wonder if, you know, similar to how when horror films used to be made more with, they show the violence off screen and they, they build the tension and the suspense before the payoff, that it was more, um, it's always scarier in your head, what you're imagining is going to happen than what they could portray on screen at the time. I mean, of course, now they can make things really grotesque and violently scary and all that. But I, I think filmmaking wise that it was it was a way to um if you already have an envisionment of jesus in your head this movie's not going to change that you're going to view your your personal you know perspective of jesus as the character in this and in in a way it might make it more real for the viewer that's the way i've always taken it um i've been her i believe was similar i've seen a few other movies where it's the story isn't actually, you know, the gospel narrative, but it's a story like this where it's characters that are interacting and, you know, within the gospel story kind of comes in and out of that. And uh, that that generally seems to be the way that that it's portrayed, where you're not seeing, you know, Jesus um, up close. You're not seeing the actor's face or anything. And, and I've always taken it more like that of just not putting out that visual of, you know, of who he is, not creating that visual. Okay. Yeah, wasn't right. um was didn't um what's his name? Do Jesus Christ Superstar Daniel? And that was controversial at the time, right? For actually showing Jesus's face or was it controversial for other reasons? I'm out of my depth here. I don't remember. You know, I've I've not even seen it, so I couldn't tell you. And and I know there was another um controversy around Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, I want to say, cuz that was a religious story too, right? Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen either of those, uh but the controversy, I believe that's around uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is that it I from what I understand it does not hold to any of the the biblical uh, stories the the gospels you know it, it kind of 
goes off on its own thing. And I, I believe that there are um, inappropriate scenes for, you know, for Christians and things like that are, are in the movie. So I think that those are the controversies that I've heard of. Um, I hadn't heard of it being, you know, having a, a depiction of, of Jesus in it. Okay. Well, now this movie also diverges from the gospels, right? I mean, this does not have any kind of biblical source material in it, right? Other than the, the, the crucifixion, but these characters are all unique other than I guess per se Peter, right? Right. Caligula, and, Caligula and Pontius Pilate, but. Right. It's a fictional story and, you know, our main characters, they're, uh, they're fiction. As far as I know, they're, they're fiction. And, and uh, it, what it is, is that this movie, the story of the robe, it, it's not a biblical account, but it, it intersects with the gospel accounts, you know, and as well as with the, the history, showing us the history uh, that's more around the story that you also don't get from the biblical accounts. Okay. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Now, um, I wanted to go to you for, uh, we've already been talking for like half the show, but uh, your reaction to what we've said in the Google description, and, and also if you could maybe suggest or why we why this was suggested. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I agree with most of I mean, everything that's been said uh, from the Google accounts and, and y'all's perspective, um, I agree. Uh, what, what I really like about the movie is the, uh, I guess, the dating of the movie. I like watching that just personally. Um, I love the big epic movies a little bit in comparison to some of these other, like the 10 commandments and stuff like that, is that it, it still has that big drama, you know, sort of acting. Uh, but it, it's, it seems to me a little bit uh, subdued, a little bit more than some of the other ones that are, you know, real popular uh, from this time period and, and these big epic films. And I think that it's possible because it was the first CinemaScope film that I think that they really did use the the entire screen in a way that was is still impressive and, and has a really good look to it. I mean, you have people moving from one side of the screen to the other. And um, you have a lot of uh, a lot of people and a lot of scenery all in one scene and, and just completely taking up the, the entire space of your screen. And, um, and it looks great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's obvious that the backgrounds are painted. Uh, they did put together some really big sets with the with the columns and everything like that and uh, really impressive sets. And uh, so just with all those things combined, um, I really enjoy looking at it. Uh, I enjoy these these older these older movies. Um, these older epic films. And um, and then you combine that with um, what I thought was just a top-notch uh, acting from some of the people, um, you know, even considering the, the time period and the style. Uh, that's really why this movie, you know, kind of stands out um, to me. And as well, the uh, just the, the story itself, I've already kind of mentioned how um, I like this sort of biblical movie where it's not necessarily a gospel account or a biblical story, but it's it's a another story that's interacting and intersecting with the biblical accounts. And it's um, similar to Ben-Hur. That's another one that I really like. And um, I think that you get these really neat stories and these ways to express some of these things that were in the Bible or what we've taken away um, from the epistles that were written after you know, after the crucifixion of Jesus and uh, they're, and that's what they they've done with this movie as well is that they've, they've put a lot of these little things in there that um, watching it and being familiar with it. Uh, there's some references to hymns um, as well as just some of the biblical accounts that 
are with Judas or Peter. And um, I just, I really like seeing these stories, I guess, from that perspective, seeing the, the gospel accounts from that perspective, rather than just, um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, but making a movie of, of the narrative, of the gospel narrative, um, you know, there's something about this style of approaching it that I just really like. Yeah, as as familiar as I am with the um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's fun to see the the biblical cinematic universe of the <laughs> 40s and 50s, all the different characters interplaying and bigger and different stories taking place, but still in that same universe. It's uh, it's, it's a little bit different today. I don't know how many of uh, these kinds of uh, biblical epics are getting made these days. If at all, I think Hollywood yeah. has changed um, quite a bit since those days. Um, I, I, maybe you've got some thoughts on that as to why. I think progressivism has really taken hold in politics and Hollywood. And I don't I don't see these kinds of um, even Bible stories. I mean, it took Mel Gibson really to, to bankroll Passion of the Christ back in the day, right? Because I don't think any right. studios are really going to take a risk on it or didn't yeah. really had a whole lot of interest in it. I think it is a bit risky. Now there is, uh, I'm, there's a whole world of Christian films that are made, you know, directly to DVD. Um, you know, but you're not going to see a movie like this, and even from even from those studios that are putting out these kind of straight to DVD or straight to um, uh, streaming, different streaming services that are catering toward Christian television and Christian movies, you're not going to see a big movie like this. And I believe that they've talked about doing even a sequel to The Passion uh, recently, but I do not know any details about that um, exactly, you know, where, what story it's going to tell or, or anything. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, this sort of biblical movies just um, are not popular. I'm sure they're risky for the studios. You know, they, they need to know that they're, you know, they're risking millions and millions of dollars. They need to know they're going to put something out there that everybody wants to see. And um yeah, I'm not. I, I just I know that there is a lot of money to be made in some of these smaller movies that these studios are putting out. You know, straight like I said, straight to Christian streaming services and DVD. But uh, I have not. I'm not aware of anything that's come out recently besides The Passion that was uh, what you would call you know an epic or a big you know big budget movie. Yeah, me neither. It's all been straight to DVD, like you said, or to like Redbox. You'll see a movie. Yeah, they just don't exist anymore. Yeah, I remember watching the trailer for this one when you suggested it, Stephen, and it said the spectacle cast of thousands. You know, it was like super, super hypey. And yeah. but I was surprised to have never heard of it prior to your suggesting it. And and it's kind of curious to me because if it did win a Golden Globe Best Picture and Richard Burton was a big deal, I mean, I only know Richard Burton from the Elizabeth Taylor stuff, Night of the Iguana, making part of Arda famous. Um, I'd never really seen any of his work. And, and I think when I first suggested, hey, let's do a movie, I was thinking Ten Commandments with Chuck Heston. And you're like, no, no, let's do Burton because he's like, he's a better actor. Um, it kind of seemed kind of similar to me, like their style of acting. And I think that's just mm -hmm. maybe the era. But um, it was super hypey yet today. I don't think anyone outside of maybe, you know, Christian types would even know uh, what this movie is at all. Yeah, agreed. Um, I, I can't remember when I first heard of this, I think it was just um, a VHS on somebody's shelf somewhere, you know, sitting next to the Ten Commandments and the Passion DVD or something, you know, and um, and decided to watch it. OK, so this wasn't even like something like you were super familiar with. You kind of encountered it. You're like, hey, that would be a good one to do. Yeah, I just kind of uh, no, I had already seen it uh, prior and and I really I really like this movie. Uh, but when I first came across it, it wasn't because um because it was a, a household name or anything like that, you know, and 
Um, I think that the history around it with winning the Golden Globe and being nominated for the Academy Awards. And um, I, I want to say I bought the DVD a little while back and um, it even has a kind of an intro with Martin Scorsese and talking about the cinema scope and how much he liked this movie and how much of, of you know, of an impact that this movie had on him. Uh, I guess growing up, I'm not entirely sure, sure where uh, he, he, when he saw this, but um, you know, there, it's, it's a bit of a, I guess, a historical, historically significant movie when it comes to, you know, the history of, of filmmaking and those big studios back in the 50s, um, even some of the new techniques that they were that they were using at the time. And so just all of that stuff combined, I, I can't remember when I first ran across this movie. And um, but I watched it uh, just uh, having an interest in watching old movies. And um, and I and I really liked it. And it, it'll be one that I kind of, you know, go back to from from time to time. Just uh, like I mentioned before, just it's the kind of story that I just really enjoy. Yeah. And after after watching it myself, I'm sort of of the mind that like watching it the first time to kind of get the story maybe makes it feel longer. And sure. if I were to watch it again, just to enjoy it, not to like, hey, I'm going to do a show about this. So it's like work, um, <laughs> like homework. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I might, I might actually like it more. I mean, I even even in the sort of limited way I was watching it, you know, over three nights and like trying to get some kind of kernel of things to talk about. I still noticed the use of the entire screen and mm. the cinematography and the set pieces that were going on. And that was all really good stuff because you don't see that kind of thing anymore. And so it really did stand out. Now, some of it is because it's outdated, but some of it is like, hey, maybe they could bring some of that style back. Not all of it, but, you know, some of it um, to, to kind of bring back a little bit of that um, narrative kind of telling, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, but, because even with the passion, you know, that that one wasn't as I'm, I'm not real sure what the technical phrases would be, you know, but it's like that pulled back and very large scene with a lot of people in it. you didn't get, you know, it was, um, you know, laid out like a traditional movie a lot of good close-ups and stuff but this this sort of you know huge epic you know feel to it yeah it would be super dated uh i would like to see though someone could try to try to pull it off and 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 maybe create a movie like this but you know cutting out some of the cheese you know no doubt there's some you know some of that uh some of that very loud acting and you know that's kind of stage like acting you know and maybe uh you know update the style a little bit that'd be nice to see yeah maybe get to do the the fight choreography instead. <laughs> yeah, if I had to compare these two movies that we're talking about here, The Passion and The Robe, I would say the the world building of The Robe is I prefer that superior. Mm-hmm. It's way better. Like you you get a sense of this this place that they're in. It really grounded in that sense. And and then in The Passion, I always felt like you were always it was very intimate and you're always really closed up, but I didn't get a sense of, you know, how big the world was. It was always I don't know, either dark or cramped or close. It, it it just had a different different feel to it entirely. The two different movies. I don't know. I would I'd like I'd like the acting of the passion and and the world building of the rope. If you could mill those two, yeah. Good. Yeah. See, we got a winner. Some producer out there <laughs> mill those two skills, those two uh, two features together, and you got a blockbuster. Oh, speaking of blockbusters, due to this uh, COVID nineteen stuff and anarcho Christian Stephen, I gotta um, commend you on your. Uh, covering your mask, your face with the mask here <laughs> yes. for safety purposes. Um, yeah, I feel safer. FEMA Region 6, <laughs> we're in FEMA Region 10. We are practicing safe social distancing here. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, man, what the hell was I talking about? Um, I was going to make some kind of quippy point. Son of a gun. Mm, uh, it's gone. So gone. Good. Um, 
Well, I do have a question. Uh, I know Caligula. I don't know much about him. Mm -hmm. The guy that made his horse a general. Yeah. So just for the peripheral recollection of, of historical remembering I have is that he was a crazy guy. Mm -hmm. And he was sort of towards the back end of the Roman Empire. We're starting to get decadent and, and start collapsing, right? So, Robert, you, it sounds like you know a little bit more about it than I do. So he made his horse a general. But was was he also like bloodthirsty crazy? I mean, they were all tyrants, right? But there were some that were more just, like we saw in Gladiator, the depiction of Marcus Aurelius. He was a decent dude. And then Joaquin Phoenix was psycho. Um, it seems like maybe this sort of has a similar thing where the prior emperor in this movie, forget his name, um, but he seemed relatively Tiberius, I think, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, he seemed relatively um, amenable. Like people could talk to him, and he would make some sense. But he was definitely in charge. But then Caligula is like this whiny brat who is kind of a nut job, and he's like, "If you disrespect me," which was my favorite part of the movie, by the way, at the very end, when uh, what's her bucket is like, "You're a tyrant, Caligula. Your rule is unjust." And you know, it was like this perfect little speech. And then she's like, "All right, you're," or he's like, "Yeah, you're, you're dead." <laughs> you're gonna go join uh marcellus uh up the stairway to heaven there yeah well i i i hope i got that right with with caligula the guy that made his horse of general it's either him or nero um those are the two main roman emperors that have not fared well to history um i want to say that it's pretty famous that um the roman aristocracy mainly the the uh, emperors and the higher ups all had like lead pipes. So they all kind of went crazy due to lead poisoning over the years. So, um, so it's probably more and more rare, the, the more sane ones, especially towards the end of the Roman empire, I would say. Okay. So you're saying because they lived in luxury, they were the 1%. They had these newfangled lead pipes to bring water running into their palaces. And that made them crazy. They had so, running water in the Roman era, Daniel, with the yeah, aqueducts and lead yeah. pipes. These are huge so, technological innovations and feats of engineering. That also made them crazy. So back when Bernie was there, he was railing against 1% having all the pipes bringing in the water. And what he didn't know was that they'd all be paying for it later. Well, the people of Rome paid for it, but yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Caligula, he's famously uh, evil dude. Uh, he's definitely played up as the jabbering little demon villain in this movie, for sure. He's not given a whole lot of nuance by this performance or by this script, but you know, he's, he's the cartoon villain. I don't think anybody's going to complain. Except maybe Caligula himself, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, Caligula, as far as I know, was um, out of a lot of the Caesars, was the most uh, like deviant of of the Caesars. That's kind of a, I guess, something that stuck with him throughout the years. And just yeah, bloodthirsty as far as um, killing the Christians and and people that they threw into the the Colosseum and stuff like that. Um, I believe you know it was Caligula, and then I think that there was another one, and then Nero, I believe, after that, and and I. I I know that between those guys, th there was a, a lot of bloodshed. And, and again, I think Caligula, one of the, the things that, that stood out to me was, I guess, historically, he's remembered for his uh, deviancy, you know, kind of sexual deviancy that, that he had. Now, wasn't there something about Nero and fiddling? While Rome burned, yeah. Supposedly, he ordered yeah, Rome he burned to, it and, to be burned. And, and then blamed the, the Christians for it. I, I think uh, Tacitus was a, a Roman historian or soldier i can't remember uh but he he kind of documented that okay so he had his own reichstag fire or gulf of tonkin uh <laughs> situation remember right. the man <laughs> they've been doing these false flags for it's a long time it's old story yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like they get the playbook all right you know the playbook all right run this <laughs> do some terrible thing and then blame it on your enemies yeah wow geez now their depiction um steven of 
Jerusalem or Palestine being this kind of backwater shithole, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, does that seem, based on your understanding, like accurate? Like that's how they would have perceived it as, hey, you're you're being sent to this like remote outpost yeah. where yeah. you're probably gonna die. <laughs> We're not sending our best. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, that's exactly the way that it's um, portrayed when you dig into the history books. The way that the Romans perceived this area, you know, I, I think in the in the movie, they do a really good job of having the the Romans kind of set it up. And, you know, I think Marcellus is being introduced to the area by a Roman uh, soldier that that's there. And, uh, you know, yeah, explaining that it's a backwater place and they're all superstitious. And uh, and just I, I think that it this film did a really good job of of giving us that sort of historical aspect of the Roman occupation of that area and the Roman, you know, mindset around around being there, you know, and, and ju- just like we're, you know, we're talking about the Gulf of Tonkin and, you know, the, kind of this timeless stuff, you know, and when you look at the way that these soldiers, you know, interact and the way that they feel about the natives and the locals, you know, you, and they're this empire that's moved into this area and, you know, you can't help, but just see, you know, these, these sort of things just play out throughout all, all of history and all of time. And um, I think that they did a good job with uh, with kind of portraying that here in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. They definitely get the sense that these Romans feel like they're this is all beneath themselves. Like I'm used to Rome. I'm I'm a, I'm one of these civilized folk and these barbarians. What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they, they get hillbillies. Yeah, they get sent out there. They got to do their time, you know, do, you know, do their their service, you know, however many months or a year out there and then uh, and then they'll get to go back to Rome and you know that sort of thing. So I, I think it's uh, it's an interesting thing and where we like I said we, we look back and we just kind of see the same thing play out. Like, this is what Empire does and this is what it looks like. Yeah and it was it was also interesting to see them get called out on it. Like hey you think you're the civilized ones but you're over here being barbaric to us. Mm-hmm. I forget who says it to her to is it is it the the girl who says it to um Caligula? She's like hey you're you're being no no it was somebody or, or earlier when they were trying to like stop the Roman attack on the village, I want to say there was somebody who called them out on, mm. they think they're so civilized, but they're the ones being tyrants. They're the ones being barbaric. I think so. Was it when the- they were trying to route the, you know, round up the Christians and stuff? I, I think, uh, the guys the got shot with arrows. And uh, I think, I think it might've happened in there. I'm not, I don't remember. Right before yeah. that big sword fight scene. Yeah. It's all fuzzy. I don't know which of the three nights it was that I was watching it, but I, I do remember that, that happening where it's like, yeah, no, you're actually the uncivilized barbarian. You're the one over here yeah. messing with us. You're the one over here committing violent acts. And that was a good call out, you know? And, and like, like you were saying, there are similarities to today. A lot of people will compare the United States to the Roman empire, especially during the, the decline, uh, that, mm-hmm. that phase of it where they're like extending their power worldwide and it's starting to wane and there's also all this like social degen- degeneracy going on. Um, there was a really good article that came out. It was in uh, RT. So, you know, it's probably got Putin's name all over it, right? Russia Today. <laughs> it was talking about how um, in the West, you know, there's decadence of the past 20, 30, 40 years has kind of led to this precipice that we're on in this um, coronavirus thing might be pushing us over that edge. So I'll put that on our show notes page because I thought it was a really interesting read. Um, so you find that at lastnerds.com slash 119. Let me know what you guys think. Uh, we, we welcome your comments, everyone, all uh, audience members. Um, reach out to us on our Facebook pages or whatever you got because um, we like to be challenged occasionally, right, Robert? Sometimes? Supposedly, you were challenged recently. I you, you mentioned that you had a good back and forth with some people on Twitter, but I, I, I don't really partake of the twits much lately, so I missed it. Oh, man, I'm terrible at the tweeting. Like, I can't follow a thread because he kept adding me, like... 
sending like things at me and I was like replying to them, but then they're not in the same conversation. It's like all over the place. So I don't, I don't know, but I, so he wasn't doing it right or you weren't doing it right. I'm going to say I wasn't because I'm not familiar, but I can tell you that I responded to everything he said and he was did he not satisfied respond. with your answers, Daniel. He stopped responding. So okay. maybe well, I'm blocked. I don't that's know. Part of the victory, right? He's going to go home and think about it. Yeah. And I even uh, direct messaged him and I was like, Hey, thanks for the conversation. I'm, I'm going to be going to bed soon. But uh, if you want more information on this, you know, here's a good link, blah, blah, blah. Because he, yeah, he, he watched our Contagion episode and he was like, you guys aren't sufficiently calling out Trump for his denial of science and all this stuff. I'm like, dude, we recorded that on February 25th. We're a movie review show. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what, what does has- Trump have to do with Contagion? I guess if we reviewed it yesterday, then we would be talking about Trump's reaction to the coronavirus. Is that what he wants us to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, during that episode, sorry, Stephen, we'll, we'll let you finish here. But, um, <laughs> but we were talking about contagion as it related to events surrounding coronavirus. But that was back when it was still in China. And we were talking about like things happening in China. And it was also back when uh, Fauci was saying to the American public, don't worry, it won't affect us. And CDC was saying, oh, don't worry about wearing masks. It, it's ineffective. It won't help you anyway. And then, of course, they backtrack on that. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on around this. But basically, he was dissatisfied with our lack of calling out Trump for things he hadn't yet done, apparently. Uh, well, in of- his defense, we are the worst. That is true. So he's right about that. We but- are the worst. I mean, capitalist movie review show on the planet. Also the best. This is true. We're both the worst and the best. But um, it does annoy me. If that's his take on it, that really is annoying that, you know, whether the country somehow lives or dies is due to the inaction or action of a political party. I would say due to action is far worse than inaction. Yeah, I'd agree. And, I, and there were there were a few criticisms when I answered all of them. So if you can figure out how to watch how to read Twitter, um, you can check nope. it out yourselves. I'll I'll put a link on our show notes page so people can view it. Um, because you know I'd, I'd love to. He- Somebody explain to me how this thing works. Anyway, back to He's the an show. Old man, and he doesn't understand. Uh, I do have my my new holster, the Urban Carry uh, three. G3, Generation 3. I love it. I've been yeah. wearing it every day since I got it. And it allows me to have an alleged firearm on me. Legally, it, it doesn't provide the legality, but I do have the legal paperwork. Papers, please. You got the permission papers? I got the permission your daddy. But I will say that it does allow me to carry it far more conveniently, comfortably, and without um, worry of it being discovered as compared to the... IWB carrier that I had in the past, which was that's an inside waistband for all you non-gun nerds. Um, it goes on your hip, and and if you don't wear baggy enough clothing, you risk it being displayed and visible by the public. So I will recommend to people two things. Number one, if you're interested, go to the link lastnerds.com/g3. Sign up for their loyalty program first, and then make a purchase because then that purchase will then award you points for money off future purchases. I made the mistake of ordering before signing up. So then I had to go through customer service rigmarole to like get the credit to then use it for other stuff. Anyway, this is my ham-fisted attempt at recommending a product for you guys that you will enjoy because I enjoy it. And we will earn a very, very small commission at no additional cost to you, my friend. Now back to the Seamless, seamless ad placement, Daniel. Good job. I didn't even notice. Was there an ad or is it just, this is a conversation we were just having. We were just talking. Just two, just three guys talking. Just three guys talking. Wow. We're really All right. good. All right. So I'm going to segue us back into the show. Did you know that the lone surviving cast member from this film is very famous? He was in Spinal Tap. He was also 
numerous voices on the Simpsons. Can you name that person? Yes. I'm Jeopardy, right? Anarcho Christian not... answer. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, you know, bu- buzzing in. Uh, it is the uh, the crippled boy that they meet in the town, and he gives the uh, donkey to. You are correct. But I'm going to wow. need a name, sir, and in the form of a question, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the name of the actor, I do not remember. It is the bass player for Spinal Tap, though. I remember that. Yeardley oh, Smith. Nope. Wow. It's Mr. Burns, though. And Smithers. Yeah. And Ned Flanders. Yeah, he does like 10 voices, I think. And Troy McClure, I think. Dan Castellana. Nope. Try again. It's the next person you're going to guess. I can't. I don't know if I can think of another name on. It's not the guy that did um, uh, Apu because that's another guy. I got nothing. Quality content here, everyone. My friend. com slash 119. Show notes more. Uh, it's Harry Shearer. Um, okay. So he was he was uh, David, uh, the crippled boy who was healed, which I think was the only miracle in the film, really. I mean, the other things that were witnessed by Marcellus, and I'll direct this towards you, Stephen, were this um, woman who was very, uh, she was also crippled, I think, or something. She, she had some kind of illness where she was lame, and she was very bitter about it. And then she talked to Jesus, and Jesus was like, turn that frown upside down, be happy. And she was, she was thankful for like, having um, the life that she could have and she was singing and, and all of this. And then the other act was of charity because David gave the donkey that was given to him. And according to Marcellus, that donkey represented great wealth. Like it was probably the most prized thing that David had ever received in his life. And he willingly gave it to another without a second thought. Yeah. The, uh, the, the woman that, that he talked to that Marcellus talked to that was also crippled. And um, I, I think that, they, this was intentional, you know, having these two different characters so that he has this sort of conversation and interaction with someone who is healed, which is, of course, a big part of Jesus's story. And as you know, we're sort of at the audiences, we're introduced to some of these these things about Jesus and um, through his interactions, through Marcellus's interactions with the Christians as he's looking for his runaway slave. And, um, and so then we see this sort of, um, this story, you know, kind of the, the two crip stories of the, the two crippled people, you know, kind of against each other, you know, where the, the little boy is healed. And then the woman that he talks to is not. And, um, you know, it's, it is really cool to see this sort of, um, this sort of conversation play out because, um, there are, you know, incorrect assumptions within Christianity that, you know, once you do, you know, believe in Jesus, then you're going to be healed. Um, so it is interesting to see, you know, this portrayed in a movie that, that correctly portrays that, you know, and kind of corrects that misconception as well. Okay. Yeah. It does make sense that there's that polarization of those two outcomes mm-hmm. from similar situations and that they want to kind of show both angles of it. And then also the charity one, that's, less a miracle but more a demonstration of the christian ethic to marcellus who's like discovering what these people are really about that they are actually not just these backwater you know Mm -hmm. barbaric people you know and and maybe he's discovering that what he's doing is actually wrong um and then i do take back that there were no other miracles there is another miracle in this and that is demetrius's recovery from being tortured to near death Ah, mm -hmm. Um, because the doctor comes and he's like nothing I can do. Sorry. He's not going to make it. And then they have him leave the room and uh, Demetrius recovers a bit and then like sorcery, sorcery and turns him in, which is kind of the downfall to Marcellus's uh, situation. 
Yeah, yeah, and it is. It, I think that the way that this film portrayed these sorts of miracles that happened, either through the people talking about what happened with Jesus, because we don't see any of that play out with Jesus. Um, he's shown very, very few times throughout the movie. You know, we see him enter in. I think Marcellus arrives to Jerusalem uh, at on Palm Sunday. You know, and we see that sort of that entrance, um, and then we see the crucifixion um, take place, you know, a few days later and, um, the showing of the, uh, and they didn't really show it, right. You know, they, they left the room, but this, this healing that took place, you know, post Jesus's death, you know, with, um, with the disciple, you know, th- this is all stuff that is, um, you know, very well documented in the biblical accounts. And that's just the, another thing that I, I know I've, I've referenced uh, back to a few times is this idea of this, this story of, how did people see those events that we that we you know it can even come to take for granted in in the biblical accounts and maybe they end up sort of feeling like a like a myth or a fable because you know they they take place within within the bible and within Matthew Mark Luke John but the way that they're able to show it from this perspective in the movie you know adding uh bringing these stories back out into you know what we could call like real history right um because like I said, I, I think that we do tend to sort of look at the Bible as a, something separate from what I'll, what I'll call real history. And um, this movie sort of brings out those those miracles and these people, you know, with Peter, um, you know, brings it into real history. Yeah, the, the reference to Peter, I was familiar with his denying Jesus three times. I mm-hmm. think that was even brought up in Passion of the Christ, wasn't it? Where he was like, there's no way I'll deny you. And then, of course, he he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's when it happens. Right. Is is uh, right there before Jesus is crucified. And um, this movie sort of taking place at that same time, you know, uh, but from a different from someone else. Like if it were happening at the same time that we were watching Passion of the Christ, you know, Marcellus in this movie, he's he's off in his other in his house somewhere else getting that call from Pilate to come and crucify Jesus. But he wasn't around for the arresting for the trial or anything like that. So it's kind of interesting, you know, if you try to maybe picture these movies in a timeline of a historical timeline, where, where was Marcellus during, during this when Peter was denying Christ and then fast forward a little bit in the robe, he's meeting Peter later and Peter's telling him what happened that night. Yeah. Do a mashup of the two yeah. or get Tarantino on it, you know, and, and maybe make <laughs> Marcellus, Marcellus Wallace, you know, look like a bitch. <laughs> oh man. Um, so yeah, I think I think that was pretty interesting. And and the um, the actor who played Peter was Michael Rennie, who was the guy Klaatu, I think, in the Day the Earth Stood Still, mm-hmm. which is a good segue, Robert, for what is we're going to be next week. Is it? Doctor Dennis Foster was on last year doing the Day the Earth Stood Still with us. And he's going to yeah. be on next week with us doing mm. Soylent Green. Oh, which is going to be here. Yeah, and it was going to be our Earth Day special, but now it's just going to be like it's probably what people are going to be eating in a few weeks if this uh, lockdown keeps up. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, we are getting close to the end of the show. So, are there any other notes that either of you guys have? Uh, and then we'll get into summary and review. Well, it wouldn't be an episode of uh, this podcast if I didn't try to talk a little bit about economics. And there was one, at least one, economic scene in the film. I'm sure you guys noticed it as well. So when Marcellus is talking to the emperor and he sends him back to Jerusalem, you know, to try and lift this curse that this robe has been placed upon him, he goes back and he starts buying up 
all these robes for well over market price. And he's totally fine with it. He even says a man not cheated when he is satisfied with the price. But there's this old kind of wise man kind of guy who comes in and he's like, shame on you people. For yeah, taking just, What's that? Justice is his name. Yeah. So he comes on and kind of interferes with these voluntary transactions and says, you know, you this is a crime that's being committed, but it's by you people selling him your goods for way above market price. So I, as a voluntarist, was like, what are you talking about? And I'm going to ask Stephen here, what, what was this guy talking about? Yeah, uh, it's it's not that um, you know there was any problem with the voluntary transactions, but you know we're in this town where this is happening. This is a a, a Christian community, right? We see the whole town come together to um, to listen to a song sung about Jesus. This is a, a Christian town, and um, what he was scolding them for was this obvious um, taking advantage of him you know, uh, of the guy that's, that's selling the, or that I'm sorry, of Marcellus buying the, the robes, you know, um, at least that's, that's what I took from it is, um, this idea of, you know, t- just, just taking advantage of him. And, um, that's something that I know in Christianity, there is some, um, you know, I guess kind of arguments uh, about where do you draw the line on, on usury and, and things like that. Um, but uh, what I what I took away from that was the the scolding of the uh, kind of intentionally taking advantage of a guy with willing to pay the the you know extra money above above market price. Now, because he could tell that Marcellus was distraught or you know had a bunch of issues going on, because otherwise, what business is it of his? What rate he wants to buy robes at? Like it's obviously satisfying some desire of his, and the money he's doesn't value as much as he values the robes. So. Is it because he could sense that this guy is not has all his marbles? Yeah, I think it. I don't know if it's even necessarily to really protect Marcellus necessarily, but just to tell those people, you know, there's so much in Christianity and what we, you know, what we understand and what we learn, uh, the the heart motive of things, right? So the the heart motive of them uh, selling these things, you know, taking advantage of this man, you know, with with the money, I think is that's. That's where where I kind of came away from it, kind of okay. scolding scolding them, you know, for for taking advantage of him. Because he did, he succeeds, and the people are all kind of ashamed, and they walk away. Yeah, and some of them kind of give him a look, like I'm not happy about this. You know, I'm gonna. <laughs> they yeah, give him I'll, back the money, and they're not very happy. I'll take a stab at this, Robert. I actually, um, I agree with Justice's uh, interceding here. He's not doing it by force. He's using social pressures and market mechanisms to indicate to the people like, hey, you should be ashamed of yourselves because you know you're taking advantage of this guy. Also, do they though? Yeah, they do. They do feel shame as a result of it, as depicted in the film. And I think that they know how, that he's overpaying. It's how pretty do they know it's pretty how do they know how do they know what's in his heart? How much what if what if they're selling this thing that is making his life complete that he just oh man, I, all I need is this rough, rough spun robe and then i'll be the happiest person in the world i'll pay whatever price i don't even care i'm i'm taking the sucker for only giving two gold pieces and i'm like making out like a bandit right but the real situation was he was using stolen money and he had unlimited amounts of it he was blood money from the roman emperor used to buy influence into an, a, a community to make a show of all this money raining down to get inroads into outing those very same people as christians so that they could be marked down for death Wait a minute. Is that what really was happening in that scene? Yeah, he's there to get people's name on this list. He's making a Schindler's list, but the opposite of Christians to be persecuted. 
I know that's why he originally goes there, but I thought that he was really just trying to find the robe. No, I think that he was using that ploy to get all the robes brought to him, but also to get this side quest, Boogaloo side quest, of getting all these people's names to be given to the emperor to be killed. Because he knew what the robe looked like. So he knew if he made a big enough show by overpaying, that people would bring all of the robes, even the ones most dear to them, such as Jesus's robe that he wore mm. while dying on the cross. So I think that this was, he knew that he was overpaying and he was doing so purposefully to meet his ends. So then justice was wrong. Well, justice was right and wrong. They, they were taking advantage of him because they were selling something to somebody they knew were overpaying, but, but he they, was were, they were being suckers. They're getting sold out. Yeah, but the they, they don't know that part. And either, either does justice. What they know is that they're overselling. or They're selling for a higher price than they would have normally expected because this guy was willing to buy it. They didn't realize it was a trap. So justice actually saved them to a degree. Unwittingly. Unwittingly. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll buy that series of events right there. I'll, I'll buy that interpretation. I, right, can see, I can see the blood money, the, un, the, un, the, the blood tax money. I can, I can see that angle for sure. And if it, I didn't see Marcellus making a list of anybody. I didn't see him getting their names or anything like that. But I could see him that being the very first part of some kind of undercover operation where you're going to be then let into this underworld of Christians and then finding out more about them and right. the attempt to destroy them. It's the big splash to get to get notoriety in there. And also, hopefully someone will show you that robe because that's what you're looking for ostensibly. But uh, Tiberius knew that Marcellus was crazy. Like, as soon as he sends him on his mission to find the robe, the, this cursed robe, he's like, that robe's not cursed. I didn't send him there to find that. I found him to get this list of Christians. There's a little more to this movie than I thought. Okay, right on. Good deal. <laughs> All right. Tell me when I'm wrong, Stephen. Is this your interpretation as well? I thought that this was, they're sending Marcellus under this supposed quest for the robe. I think it's a good really, point. Really, the quest is get into these Christians and report back to me so I can, you know, I can crush them. I think it's a good point. Uh, yeah, it's not necessarily laid out, but he knows what that robe looks like, right? And um, going there and flashing all that money around, these people are very willing to come out and say, you know, that they're Christians, that, uh, and and also he's trying, he is trying to find the other robe and trying to find uh, Demetrius, you know, his runaway slave, you know, and what's a, I guess, a faster way to, to get people to open up to you than to flash all that money around and pay Way too much for uh, for the robes, and much like a stimulus package today, they're getting paid by their own with their own money. <laughs> right, yeah, twelve hundred today, <laughs> grand. It's a cash for clunkers, right? You know, for the robe buying those robes back. Oh man, I thought that was a bad deal. <laughs> this is so much worse. But uh, anyway, um, very good point, and I think that was like probably the best discussion we've had in quite some time. So thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Robert. So uh, any final notes before we do final summary review? No, Daniel, let's go ahead and let's wrap this bad boy up. But I want to thank Stephen for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. I, I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you. Everyone's appreciating each other. We're having an appreciation circle here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, happy Easter, everyone. No, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're not like a kid-friendly show. Um, so I'll, I'll kick us off here. So this movie, I had not heard of it until a few months ago when I was like, hey, Stephen, let's have you back on. Let's do another Easter show. Um, I was thinking Ten Commandments, and you were like, Chuck Heston's great, but Burton's even better. So let's do that. No disrespect to Mr. Heston. Uh, and I I got to say, I, I was glad that you suggested this. This was actually a, a pretty good movie. Um, and yeah, it is dated in a lot of ways, but there's also some kind of uh, 
scenery that you like. There's some of it that's a bit nostalgic and, and you almost long to have some of this back in, into cinema again. And uh, I, I, I'm glad that I saw it. I don't think I would have seen it had you not recommended it. I've never heard of it prior to this. Uh, and it's kind of surprising because it did win awards. It was the first movie in Cinescope. It had Richard Burton, who was a big deal back in the day. Um, and I wonder if there's some reason why this isn't more known. I mean, the Ten Commandments is known. Ben-Hur is known. Uh, Spartacus is known. And those are all from a similar era. So I, I, I just don't understand um, why this one didn't uh, get put in that same strata. Watching it, I mean, it seems pretty good. Uh, I'm probably going to like upgrade this to, from what I was going to give it. So I'm going to go with 7.5 on this. I, I would recommend that people watch this. It's a, it's a fun movie. So uh, we'll go to uh, Robert. And then we'll go to Stephen for your score and summary well uh fun is not a movie a word i would use to describe this movie i even though i, I liked our discussion a lot um I, I mean i didn't like laugh or anything or even smile when i was watching the film i it's definitely got a an interesting story i like the story aspect i mean you're talking about this this roman almost a senator like not quite a senator but almost a senator guy senator son senator son but he also is an elected dude tribute like Tribune. Yeah. Tribune there. I guess there's some kind of, he's part of the governmental structure. Let's put it that way. And he's sent to this backwater and he partakes in this execution and the guilt he feels over it by meeting these, you know, he has this life changing event, meeting these, these, these caring, loving, giving people. And it's so opposite to the world he knows other than the love of this, this woman back in Rome for the most part um, and his path to ultimately Ultimately denying the state, which is one thing I thought we were going to talk about. We ended up just briefly <laughs> mentioning it a little bit. I thought we we're going to mostly focus on that last scene. Yeah, we didn't. Too. That was like the scene that I thought was like the scene to make this a movie for us. Yeah, right, this is right. that scene was the signature last nighter's scene for that movie, uh, where they basically tell Caligula, "No, sorry, buddy, you've got a king too." And you know, Caligula's like, "What? You have another king?" heresy basically and they're like nope sorry man you uh you're no good i'm out and they they peace out and they walk off to heaven um it's it's which i think you know they those characters in that scene and this is one of the things i love about religion i don't there's a lot of things i don't like about religion good and bad things with all things in the world but one of the main things i love about it is the fact that they hold something higher than the state they hold God, Jesus, whatever your deities are, above the creations of mankind. And that's above the state, thankfully. Somebody. I wish I wish more Christians were active in that, in that they just like, you know, whatever these government people say, you know, it's whatever, but it's not up here with my religion stuff. Yeah, um, a lot of the religion has been co-opted by state worship now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, people throw like Romans, what is it, seven thirteen, whatever it Romans is. Romans thirteen, yeah, yeah, they throw that around. Like Romans Christians should listen to the government, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, that kind of thing. Yeah, just um, taking those things, you know, out of context and and building in what you know really what you see today with with Christianity just so intertwined with with the state. Yeah, and if I yeah. recall. We got into that a uh, fair amount in our discussion last year on Passion of the Christ. So I'll suggest people listen to that because we talk about Romans 13 and this whole uh, intermixing of religion and, and state and, and the co-opting uh, a fair amount in that one, if I recall. Yeah, it's really another trick of government to really supersede themselves over religion and religion's folks and, 
it's it's refreshing to see it in this movie where people take a the characters take a principled stand at the end and they make an actual rational decision to go off and die rather than i mean it's rational to them in the moment i mean i'd probably run away but you know what i mean like they're they're actually denying caesar and actually saying something true to him and he just can't have that that's just anathema to uh this political bureaucrat guy who yeah i I found marcel is actually pretty compelling he's like hey you know you don't need to be a tyrant (laughs) you could join us and everything would be better but uh yeah he's like no he's like no no, not not in my world buddy so yeah um i think the movie ends in a fantastic way i really appreciated that it resonated with me as uh as atheistic as i am but the film itself um it was just I've just been too, I've seen too many movies, man. I'm just this old jaded guy who has seen way too many movies. And there are some things about this film that are kind of fun to see for sure. The big scenes of like the bizarre with all the people and the things going on. It's like the coordination and all those extras, the costume design and the the set design and all the, the matte paintings. So we're actually seemed really well done. Um, I'm sure if you got up real close, they'd probably lose their detail, but for what it was, I think it was quite, quite well done, especially for the time. But um, I, for me, it just doesn't age very well. And the the storytelling style, I'm sure you could redo this movie or today. Well, Hollywood today wouldn't redo it. But if you had redone it today, you could tell it in a different style. And I think it would be much more appealing to a modern audience. And I would give it a higher rating. But for what it is, I, for me, it's like a six. I was, I, it was just too slow that it, it bored me. But Certain elements did resonate. The story was good. The acting, even though it was done in that style, I could see it was decent. But um, yeah, a six for me. I I would recommend it if you're interested in this sort of thing. But I don't think it's gonna you know take off with any kind of like modern audience. All right, thank you for that, Roberts and uh, Stephen. Over to you for your final summary and your score, one to ten. Go a decimal point or however many you want deep. Uh, we're playing fast and loose here. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we did bring up that final scene uh, because it, it is a significant moment in the movie. You know, this it, it isn't just um, oh, you're a Christian and and you're you're going to be put to death just because we don't like Christians. You know, we see this this trial and we see this you know complete rejection of of the state. You know, and it's it's um, very straightforward. And so I, that's something that I just I really do enjoy about this movie, and it makes it you know very relevant to the things that that we're all doing here. Um, so, and I, I think that I've said it, uh, from the start, you know, that I just, I love this movie. I love the, um, all the historical aspects of it, as far as filmmaking, uh, just the grand scenes and the cinema scope and, and, uh, all of that, as well as the, the real history, uh, that we see with all of the interactions that we see with the, the characters that we are familiar with already with the Bible and, uh, with Peter and Judas and, you know, and, and the, the Roman, you know, occupation, everything in the story, I just, uh, from a historical perspective, I thought that they just, uh, they were right on. Uh, it looks great. It sounds great. Um, you've got, you know, like you said, you've got horses, you know, horse chases, you've got a love story. Um, you know, the rejection of the state there at the end, um, all of this historical context. And, um, I, I love this movie. I would recommend it to to anyone uh, from film student to uh, someone who's interested in maybe a Christian perspective of of um, martyrdom. But 
of obviously from a perspective of knowing that this is a fictional story, it's not a biblical account and um, any of the superstitions that are talked about, you know, around the, the robe as being sort of this, uh, this centerpiece that kind of drives part of the story. Um, you know, it's, it's not biblical, but um, I think that we can still enjoy it and we can still get a ton out of this movie. And um, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go way high with a nine uh, on this, on this film. Uh, I think that there's so much that, that so. That's All right, if you can read the last, last <laughs> sentence just one more time, because I think it broke up a little. What was the last sentence you said? Uh, that I'm going to go big with the score on this one, and that is a nine. I'm going to recommend a, you know this film at a nine, just considering all of the the history involved in you know in the movie making process, as well as the history that's portrayed with the um, the biblical narratives and uh, in that time period. It's a it's a great movie. All right. Well, pretty strong defense, and and I think uh, our conversation pulled me up from probably being close to down where Robert was on his score, but a pretty good variety. So we have some contention on the show tonight, everyone. That usually makes uh, one of our better shows. And uh, we've done 119 of these now for the last nighters. So uh, this is, of course, found at lastnighters.com slash 119. Uh, you can find our guests' stuff over at anarchochristian.com and also look out for his uh, interview on Blast Off with Johnny Rocket and Raylene Lightheart. We will have Raylene on in a few weeks, but coming up next week, we're going to be doing Soylent Green with Dr. Dennis Foster, who was last with us a year ago doing The Night the Earth Stood Still, or The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's it's nighttime here, so I'm, I'm all confused and I'm old. Senile, run for president, or am I? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, Michael Rennie was Peter in this movie, and he was Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still, so we have a nice segue into that. And we have the uh, Richard Burton versus Chuck Heston back-to-back double feature going on. So that will be what we're doing next week. Uh, again, Narco Christian, our guest, uh, narcochristian.com and all that. Uh, check us out on lastnighters.com slash 119 for show notes and hit us up on Patreon for our bonus content, affectionately called Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which we'll be doing right after our final messages here from Robert, who always has a nice way of signing us off with ways you can support the show. Well, yeah, you can get together and you can uh, violate social distancing and talk about the show. You could follow social distancing, but I mean, you're not going to win bonus points with me. I don't really care. You do you, you live your life and you accept risks. That's part of our jobs as human beings is to determine risk and the successful ones survive and the unsuccessful ones see an early grave. And so far, most of us are doing a pretty good job. And so I'm sure you're well aware of the risks out in the world. So anyway, yeah, you could do that. You can leave a review. You can interact with us on Facebook, on Twitter. Apparently, some of us get on Twitter sometimes. You can uh, support us on Patreon. That's probably the biggest thing is when the rubber meets the road and you actually give us you know, Federal Reserve fiat notes for some reason. That really uh, excites us. Yeah, but, send us and, your Trump bucks, everyone. I'm sorry, what, Daniel? Send us some of those Trump bucks. Yeah, Trump bucks. Those are good. Uh, but you could buy a t-shirt on Trumpster.com or a sticker or anything else like that. You can uh, subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast. You can leave a review, any kind of interaction, positive review, negative review. You can talk about how our ideas are all terrible and unworkable. That's one of our most great ideas. Good times, man. So yeah, and then we'll uh, we'll see you next week with uh, uh, eating people because you know spoilers, please. Yeah, sorry. Future dystopian film, right? I don't know. When does it take place? Does it take place like like two weeks? 
1990 or something, some far flung distant future. It actually had a, a, a meme that had like all the dystopian sci-fi on a timeline and uh, something that green's on there. I, th- I think it's like just a few years ago, but uh, it seems like it might be in just a few weeks. A few uh-huh. short now, if we don't get over this uh, flatten the curve hype <laughs> uh, and all that. Uh, Steven, uh, thank you again for, for being our guest. I hope you can stick around for some of the bonus content. And if you'd like to have any final message for our last night's audience, uh, now is step up to the mic, my man. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I enjoyed it last year, enjoy it again this year, and hopefully we can do it again. Uh, if anybody's interested in reaching out to me, you can do it through the website, anarchochristian.com or any of the social media pages. We're on there. Just, you know, send me a note, uh, about, you know, anarchism, Christianity, the movie, whatever you'd like. Be happy to talk. All right. Very good. Well, uh, we will say good night from last night. Happy Easter, everyone. Peace out. All right. Before we get into that, uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive, we're going to do a, just a few more minutes on the Actual Anarchy podcast. It's the show within a show concept, uh, probably a failed concept, but I keep doing it. Uh, I think that's the definition of insanity. Am I right, Roberts? Yes, that's correct, sir. You are definitely having mental problems, not just the uh, old timers disease that uh, Joe Biden suffers from. I can tell you this. I have not yet dropped out of the presidential race for the 2020 nomination. Um I also have not joined the race. So technically I have not dropped and that is true. But anyway, I, I usually try to save something for this uh, final uh, portion. You always do. You always got some interesting question that somehow doesn't get addressed during the regular show. Yeah, now, if, now I feel like I'm on the spot, so I don't really have anything. But I was curious, uh, because we're not yet in the bonus content, I, I want to address this a little bit uh, with just the current pandemic and the usurpation of all the supposed rights that we have that the constitution bill of rights are supposed to protect because they are bestowed upon us not by the state but by our creator or as the basis of our humanity and that they're violating all these rights consistently and a near totality it's like a, a de facto martial law situation and i was just curious what your perspective on it was Stephen, because i know what robert's perspective on it is and i know what mine is well <laughs> In the defense of the authoritarian overlords, somebody did get sick. So <laughs> yeah, well, what are you going to uh, do? You got to crack down. You got to crack some heads, right? Right. You got to assure everybody who's boss and um, let them know that, you know, our rights come from government and they can take it away as fast as they can give it to us. You know, but yeah, I am a complete Spooner, you know, fan. And, uh, you know, once we do start talking about the Constitution, I, I'm just right there with the unfit to, to exist you know, position because I, I like talking about it. I like learning about it. I'm a big history nerd. Um, and it's, I think it's really helpful to point out how the government does overstep its own rules that supposedly is holding it back. Um, and I think the of those rules. So yeah, I, I think it's a great conversation to have. And I, I always want to encourage people to, to learn the constitution for that purpose. Um, but when it comes to, you know, why or how or anything. Well, hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm right there at the Spooner thing. It's either, you know, it's either created this or it's powerless to stop it. And it, otherwise it's unfit to exist. Yeah, absolutely right. And all the people that signed it are dead. So you're not beholden. Yeah, they can create a, a contract that just locks in millions of people to come after them. You know, it's just- yeah, In it's, perpetuity. <laughs> they happen to be born in a particular place. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, so um, 
I know our show is already getting a little long because the discussion on the film was was so good. And, and we can probably continue some of this question I'm about to ask in the Kathleen Turner right available for our Patreon supporters. So, you know, pay money for the real good stuff. We, we, we gave you just a taste so far, but you got to pay for the rest. But um, Stephen, what do you see kind of as the result of this? Like, we still don't know the end, right? Right. Extending things, extending things. <laughs> There's nothing so permanent as a temporary government measure or a temporary emergency. I think that's a, a Heinlein quote. Um, so a lot of these usurpations are going to stick around. Uh, it's the Robert Higgs ratchet effect. Like they're going to take all of this drastic steps. And then when things kind of cool down, they'll back off a little bit, but they'll always have more power than they had prior to the crisis. And as Ron Manuel, of course, famously said, you never want to let a good crisis go to waste. So they're using this uh, to give cover for a lot of advancement of policies and ideas and uh, pet projects and things that they've wanted for a whole long time. This $2 trillion stimulus package had tons of pork in it, up and down, $25 million for the Kennedy Center, uh, all these other things um, all across the board. And, and you can just imagine that this thing was sitting there waiting to get shoved into some bill just to get their things advanced and, and passed under the guise of an emergency. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know where I'm going with this question, but what do you see um, happening as the direct aftermath? And, and how do we as advocates for liberty who are enormously outnumbered, way more outnumbered than I thought we were. Mm -hmm. Like so many people are the brown shirts right now, turning people in yeah. for the most inane stuff. Yeah, and the I snitching thought, and <laughs> yeah, I thought there was some some American backbone, some streak of liberty in there. Still, it's 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 fucking dead. I mean, it is dead. I don't know. We're we're less than a one percent minority. I I gotta think. I thought we were maybe five percent of people like amenable to the ideas of liberty and freedom, or at least paid lip service to it. Uh, but that that seems to be a high estimate at this point. Daniel, before Stephen answers, um, you break up a really interesting point. I mean, you're talking about all this pork that had to just be sitting around, right? They didn't just come up with this at the last minute and the Kennedy Center came out with this desperate plea for assist. It had to be like, there had to be a meeting where all these senators get together and they're like, all right, pull out your pork files and everybody just throw them in a pile in the middle. And then we'll, we'll, we'll slap together and we'll put a new face on it and we'll call it a bill and we'll call it like the coronavirus relief bill or whatever. Right. That, that had to be in a, a, a meeting where that happened. Right. I mean, or, how else do these things get done? Send us all your stuff. Just throw everything in. We're just big, yeah. building a big bonfire. Yeah. I mean, that's what we saw after nine 11 too. You know, the Patriot Act, it didn't just happen spring up immediately overnight because of some sort of sense of, Oh, we've got to, create these giant bureaucracies and, uh, you know, and remove people's uh, liberty for our own safety. You know, that stuff was sitting around written or half written, you know, just waiting for these events, right. And to, to uh, not let these crises, crises go to waste, however you say that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I think that we're seeing the same thing play out and I wish I was more optimistic here. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think we're seeing, the results of just the lip service to liberty show itself, you know, after, you know, years and years, you know, post 9-11, we, we see these events happen. And, and just like what you're explaining, you know, it, it is going to go back to normal, but there's going to be something there that's going to be left there, whether it's the TSA or, you know, the inflation of the dollar or nationalizing, you know, you know, businesses or something, you know, something is going to be, be left there. And not to mention, we've all seen how this kind of soft rollout for a martial law will, will happen and, um, and how far they can get 
with it and um and what it would take and and unfortunately it's it's not much it doesn't take much to turn neighbors you know snitching on neighbors you know these guys are having a, a party with more than 10 people you know in their backyard and cops breaking them up uh you know and people are calling for it that's what's been just so appalling to me it it isn't that the state's doing it i expect the state to do this sort of thing but the fact that there is a strong what appears to me a strong majority of everyone you know demanding that this happen and that's just what's blown me away yeah, it reminds me of Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 where it's the people asking to be protected from being offended that yeah. results in the fire people the firemen burning all this book all the books and literature it's the people demanding their own incarceration it's it's maddening mm-hmm. and it's just man i just don't even know how to put this into words but like it just demonstrates how far outnumbered we are and how far we have to go to um have any hope for overcoming this because it's uh it seems like a lost cause at this point like your best bet is really just kind of agorism at this point you know like become so insulated as you can to be as least affected by the state as possible because the the 2012 ron paul movement as as exciting as that was i i it's it's like the opposite end of that spectrum right now for me it also shows how far we have yet to go with the the usurpation of the mainstream media and how effective they still are at stoking with among our neighbors and our friends and people, relatives. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows somebody who's freaking out about this. And if if people are calling cops on their neighbors for having a little get together or something, you know, it's like these people, I, these are people that never think it'll be used against them. And that they're actually doing a good thing. They're, they're, they've been so conditioned to believe that if I call the cops on these people, not only am I protecting good myself, <laughs> good things are going to happen. And I'm protecting those people because they are doing something bad against yeah. everybody else. I mean, how many times do, do people call the cops for a welfare check and then they end up shooting the person they were doing the welfare check on? You know, I mean, I'm sure it's anecdotal, but those are the stories you see. And it's like, well, wait, you were supposed to make sure this guy was okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one more excuse after the next, though. You know, we 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 look at it just from a completely outsider's perspective. You know, and uh, when you're when you're locked in and conditioned, uh, as you're saying, you know, it's just it's one excuse after the next. You know, it's for their own good, or they should have obeyed, and no one would have got gotten hurt. You know, there's you you can go all day with the with those same phrases. You know, just that. Uh, that people use in defending, you know, the police overstepping and overreaching of the government and everything like that. Um, I, I just, it, it blows me away that we are where we are, where, you know, there is, there, there always has been such a culture of Liberty, uh, but it seems to be only the only in um, uh, rhetoric, Again, you know? Yeah. Rhetoric. And yeah, when you push it just a little bit and you get people just a little bit frightened and, and just then, a little bit is, is really yeah. the, the, the takeaway here. It did not take very much. You're really, this is like the the weakest pandemic crisis yeah. of all time. I mean, yeah. we wouldn't know I don't that. Want to downplay the number of people who have died, but when you talk compare it to like the 1919 flu, it's like nothing. Yeah, well, they they talk about it like it's a huge deal, and they're they're juicing the stats. I mean, they've admitted to that as much. Uh, there's all these fake news stories that have come out where they're using footage from Italy and pretending it's New York. There was one. Uh, this is a coronavirus dying on a table, and it's a dummy. You know. It's, it's ridiculous, and it's all fear-mongering. It's, it's all part of this um, vicious circle of reinforcement of each other's leg. Of you got the pharmaceutical companies and the MSM uh, and the AdRev, and then the politicians who are more than willing to accept all this additional power grab that they're allowed to have. 
you know, it all self reinforces and it's really uh, just kind of an awful thing to see. And uh, we need to, to wind down the actual anarchy portion of the show, but I will end with this. I will say that I will go out on a limb and say that this will end up being less than a 1% mortality rate. It'll be no worse than a bad flu and that this will all in retrospect uh, to those willing to see a giant overblown reaction where we're killing the economy, which is there the will life, be, life support. There will be no apology. Much there like there was, no, there will be no apology. Just like there was no apology with um, the internet. You know what I'm talking about? The internet thing. Daniel, come on, help me. My old <laughs> man brain. I'm having a Biden moment. Net neutrality. Net neutrality. Sorry, go ahead, Daniel. Just like there's no neutrality, there's no apology here. Go ahead. Sorry. Right. And not only will there not be an apology, there will not be an admission of fault. They will say it's it's a heads they win, tails you lose situation. If the numbers come in well under the models, it's going to be due to the drastic measures taken. They've already said that. Due to social distancing, it saved so many lives. Right. And if it had been worse off, then it would have been we didn't do it hard enough and fast enough. That's right. So next time, that's what I'm afraid of, especially mm -hmm. the next time anything comes up. It's anything gonna, real. But yeah. The playbook is now it's it's there. And you know, there will, I think, be some return to normalcy. They can't keep this charade, 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 charade up a whole lot longer. People are not going to stand for it. They're they're right now telling people don't even go to the grocery stores. I mean, you're talking about people in a country whose average savings is like four hundred dollars. You know, like people aren't prepared for this. I, I'm, I am very fortunate in that I have a yard and I was a bit of a prepper. So I have some stuff. Well, uh, and zero interest rate for the past 10 years has really kind of forced people to not have savings. I mean, you're basically a sucker. If you have a bunch of savings, you're just losing value. I am a sucker, <laughs> uh, gladly right now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the recipe is a disaster and it's baked in the cake. And, and the, the next one's going to be even worse. And I mean, who knows what it'll take to, to, to trigger this type of response again? Because I think all the wrong lessons will be learned from them, by the people, by, by the majority of the people who are at the same time in one breath saying Trump is literally Hitler, but now they're saying he's not Hitlerian enough. So work that out on your own. I don't know how that works, um, but that that's kind of the end of the show. Uh, I'll give you guys uh, each a moment to comment before we get into Kathleen Turner Overdrive on this episode 176 of the show, the super lengthy Easter special, because we're already at, whoa, uh, an hour and 41 minutes. Yeah, so on this Easter special, thank you all for listening. This was a really fun discussion um, listen to a couple of heathens talk to uh, a Christian about uh, a, a religious movie. Um, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, and I kind of like it like that. I mean, I used to be a Christian back in the day, and I, I have no horror stories about why I'm no necessarily no longer a Christian. But um, I, I, I love my Christian brothers and sisters who are out there putting their religion above the state. And I wish more of them would just reject the state entirely, but that just goes to show how much more work we have to do. So thank you for joining us on this episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you to Stephen. I'll let you have the last word, sir. I appreciate it again. Uh, thank you for having me on uh, twice now. And um, uh, really enjoy you guys also, you know, stepping out of those comfort zones and, and watching these, uh, these movies and, um, and discussing them. It's, it's been a, a really good time and uh, I hope we can do it again. All right. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. And it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, on an Easter or uh, any particular religious holiday, though. I think it kind of ties in. So, you know, whatever you want to do. We'll, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, audience. Um, check us out next week doing Silent Green. We'll be back more in our uh, dystopian uh, comfort zone. 
uh, as we're quarantined in FEMA Region 10, and we will be talking with Dr. Dennis Foster again in his triumphant return uh, for Silent Green next week. Uh, check out anarchochristian.com for Stephen's work and more, and uh, support us on Patreon, actuallyanarchy.com slash Patreon, and we will see you guys all next week. Maximum freedom. Don't let freedom die, people. Please. We are so Freedom close. caught COVID. I'm sorry. Freedom is dead. Damn. Yeah. They got yeah, COVID-19. Freedom, freedom is elderly and frail. <laughs> and, uh, it's got comorbidities. Need some freaking uh, ventilator machines right now. And uh, we need to spark the brush fires of ventilators to keep it going. So thank you guys. Join us next week. We appreciate you. And we appreciate you, Stephen. Thank you again. And uh, stick around for Kathleen Turner Overdrive right after this, everyone. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.